1 Samuel chapter 16. This morning we begin, like I said, this new sermon series in looking at the life of King David. Now, King David ruled in Israel around 1000 BC, and uh, he was a really crucial figure in the life of Israel. In fact, First and Second Samuel, the books that tell us about King David, they begin the story with this loose connection of tribes and villages and towns in Israel. Uh, they're, they're not strong, they're not powerful, they're not wealthy, they're not prosperous. But then at the end of 2 Samuel, after King David ascends to the throne, Israel is this united monarchy whose borders extend as, as far south as Egypt. I mean, they take territory and they grow. And they become the most wealthy and powerful nation in the eastern Mediterranean, all because of King David. I mean, this guy was a big deal. Um, and so that's why we look at him. We look at him and study his life and what the Lord did in his life and through his life because uh, the Bible shows him to be this great hero of God's people. Uh, it's similar to the way that we as Americans look back on um, the time of like the Revolutionary War and General Washington President Washington. We, we hold up these figures as um, these pillars of the foundation of our nation. Likewise, we look at King David as this pillar and foundation of the nation of Israel. So that's why we're going to study the life of David, because the Bible tells us we should look to him. We should see who he is. Um, and before we get into the story of David, I do think it's, it's important for us to sort of bring everyone up to speed. Like, why are we starting in the middle of 1 Samuel? Where does King David fall in the life and history of Israel? So real quick, crash course history of Israel in three minutes. All right. In the fall, we looked at the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we looked at the first 11 chapters, and then we stopped. But at chapter 12, God calls Abraham out from his pagan country and says, go to this land that I will promise you, and I will make you a great nation, and through you, the world will be blessed. So Abraham goes, he settles in the land, and he has descendants, and they multiply, and they grow. You have Abraham, and then you have Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, and this nation that comes from Abraham, they're growing and increasing, but then there's a famine in the land, so they journey down into Egypt. While they're in Egypt, escaping this famine, they continue to grow, but then the leaders of Egypt get scared, and they put the, these people, they make them slaves. And so for hundreds of years, the people of God are slaves in Egypt, but then the Lord hears their cries raises up for them Moses, who will deliver them out of slavery. And so the Lord sets them free. They cross through the Red Sea. They journey through the wilderness back to the promised land, promised to Abraham. Moses is leading them, and then they get to the promised land, and they eventually come into the promised land, and Joshua takes the over, and he is now leading the people of God, and they conquer the land that is now Israel. 
and they settle in that land, and Joshua, uh, he dies. And so time after time, the Lord raises up for the people of God judges who rule and, and execute justice and defend the people when there's battles and lead the people, but then they come and they go, and there's no king in the land of Israel. But then all the Israelites look around and they see all these other nations who are powerful and strong. They have kings. And so Israel says to God, we want a king. And so God tells Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, Samuel, go and, and, and find a king. And the people look for this king and they, they find King Saul and they make him the king. Uh, and the first half of the book of Samuel follows the life of Saul. But Saul, uh, you will find out, he's rejected by God. Uh, and the people are looking for a new king. And so uh, the Lord says to Samuel again, I'm going to send you now to find a new king. In fact, the whole book of 1 Samuel is, can really be summarized in this one theme, the search for a king. And so we pick up the story after Saul has been rejected. The Lord tells Samuel, go and find a new king. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that we would see uh, in your word uh, your truth for our lives. Pray that your spirit would illumine this text to us and bring us to conviction and confidence in your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to follow along and take notes, I, I put these bullets in the bulletin for you, and my three points, and um, these three questions. First, how does God see David? Secondly, how do we see David? And last, who should we see in David? So how does God see David? How do we see David? And who should we see in David? Well, first, how does God see David? Have you ever known someone who, uh, when they walk into a room, they sort of command the attention of everyone? You know, maybe they're um, a natural-born leader, Maybe they're the life of the party. The kind of person that you know when they walk in, everyone's looking at them. They're sort of, they, they take the attention. Well, that's what happened with Samuel. You see, Samuel was sent by God to go to Bethlehem and to find the new king that the Lord would show him. And when they got there, uh, Samuel has this feast, this celebration, this sacrifice, and he invites Jesse because he knows one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king. And Jesse brings his firstborn son in, Eliab. And Eliab walks in, and immediately Samuel knows, surely this is the one that the Lord has chosen. There was something about him that just demanded Samuel's attention. But then the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, no. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is saying that his evaluation of people, the way that he judges a person, is, is not by the same standard or rubric that the world uses. Men and women look at the outward appearance of things, and uh, we judge whether they're good or bad by that, but the Lord looks upon the heart, is what is on the inside of a man or woman that counts to the Lord. And it's interesting in the way that, uh, that, the, way that the Lord says, I've rejected him. He says, do not look at his height. Um, it's interesting that the Lord makes this comment about Eliab, because we don't read anything about how tall Eliab is. And it's almost like the Lord is saying to Samuel, remember when you anointed Saul, he was tall. And that, that, that was a, one of the things that stood out about Saul was he was a head above all the other men of Israel. He, he was attractive and stood taller and more powerful. The Lord is again saying, I have rejected the people's king, but I am going to choose a new king for myself. 
Don't look at his outward appearance. That's not what I care about. I care about what is in the heart of the king. He's driving home this point that whatever is great in the eyes of the world is not necessarily great in the eyes of God. Whatever definition of success that we might use in this world is not the same definition of success to the Lord. To be great in the world does not make you great in the eyes of God. Yes, Saul was great in the eyes of the world, but his heart was not. The Lord does not look at the outside, but on the inside. And the Lord is just saying what we all know to be true. You can't judge a book by its cover. Outward appearances are not the best indicator of, of the true value of something. About seven years ago, around Christmas time, um, I was looking to find one more present for Sarah. Um, I, 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 we had sort of been talking about how many gifts we had gotten for one another. I knew I was down one, so I needed to get one more. And so uh, I turned to Amazon, and I found on Amazon uh, these beautiful diamond earrings. I mean, they were gorgeous. And the price, you, know, you could not beat the price. And I thought, oh, she's going to love these. So I ordered them. And, and seven years ago, Amazon wasn't quite as fast as now. Like, now you can order something in the morning, and it's there by 3 in the afternoon. Back then, it took like three weeks during Christmas time to get something delivered. Um, and so I, I ordered it, and it actually arrived uh, the day before Christmas Eve. So it was like, this is my last opportunity. And I got it, and I opened it up. And uh, it was not good. These earrings, I mean, they looked exactly like the picture on Amazon, uh, but they were like microscopic. That's why they were so cheap. They were so tiny, and I knew I had to get something different. I mean, it was just awful. But the, the picture on Amazon led me to believe that these things w would be the best gift, and, and they failed. The, the appearance of things do not give us the true value of them. We all know that to be true. And it can be true, you know, whether it's a Christmas gift or if you go, uh, Walmart has a section that's the, uh, like, as seen on TV devices. Like, none of those things really ever work the way that they're intended to. Things don't always function as they appear. This can be true in the church, in God's church. Last year, uh, there was this podcast released by Christianity Today uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it was this 10-episode podcast that, that uh, was an expose of this large megachurch out in Seattle, Washington that was planted in the late 1990s. And it, it grew. I mean, it exploded. Uh, they were, I mean, seeing... Um, hundreds and then thousands of people come into their church. They were planting multiple locations all over the Pacific Northwest. Their digital reach extended across the world. I mean, they were having baptism Sundays where hundreds of people were being baptized. They were planting churches in every uh, city in that area. They were bringing in money. Like externally, they were hitting all of the right marks of success. And all of this was because of this charismatic leader, Mark Driscoll. But as this podcast shows, 
beneath the surface, this charismatic and, and, and very fun and attractive person to listen to and follow, he was narcissistic and abusive and a bully. And within the church, it was a toxic place to belong to and to work at. It imploded in the 2010s, thankfully, by the grace of God. It was successful on the outside, but on the inside, it was corrosive. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance of things, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is what God saw in his future king. He looked at the heart. And that is how he sees you. He doesn't look at your outside. He looks at your heart. What does the Lord God Almighty see in you? Does he see a heart that has been purified by faith? Does he see a heart that loves him most supremely? Or does he find a heart that is still desperately wicked? It's easy for us to ignore the heart and focus on our outward appearance. I'm not talking about trying to make ourselves look attractive. I'm talking more about our attempts at fulfilling these social and cultural and familial definitions of success and greatness. Like even in the church, we can mask our, uh, the nastiness of our own hearts by external performances of ritual and religion, something that the Lord himself calls Israel to repent of. Are you just going through the motions on the outside with the Lord? Or is your heart really in it? The Lord doesn't look on the outside. He looks at your heart. That's the way that God sees David. He was the youngest of the sons. He was the smallest of the sons. He, he was the kind of one that, that Samuel did not think, surely this is the king. But it's so in God's character to take the things of the world that have been cast aside and rejected and, and, and declared to be foolish to bring about wisdom. The Lord uses the outcast for his purposes. He uses David. That's how God sees his king. Not as man does, but as he does, by looking at the heart. But we can't see the heart of David, so we have to ask, how are we supposed to see David? Well, David is brought before Samuel, and the Lord says, this is the one, saying to Samuel in verse 12, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Although technically at this time Saul was still king, the Lord had rejected him. It was clear as day. And soon David, now anointed, will ascend to the throne. There's this transition of power taking place in the life of Israel this time. And we have to ask the question, why was Saul rejected, though? Like, why does God need to find this new king? What should we look at in David to say, well, he's better than Saul? We don't have much time to get into the details of Saul's life, but let me just say this about the kings of Israel. They had two responsibilities. 
The first was that the king was to represent God to the people of Israel. He was to lead the people in righteousness and justice, just as the Lord would. So he was to be the representative of God to the people, not in a sacrificial way, but in a uh, exemplary example, example or model kind of way. And the second responsibility was that the king was to represent the people to God. He was supposed to be that role model of what it meant to be a true Israelite. He was to embody the collective heart and soul of the people through his leadership and through his actions. He was supposed to be the hero that the people could rally behind as he led them. If you've been watching the news lately, like, we have a real-life example of a leader of a nation stepping up to be a hero. President Zelensky in Ukraine, he did not abandon Kyiv. He did not run away. He put on a soldier's uniform. He's eating and drinking with his fellow soldiers. He's broadcasting videos to encourage his people to stay and fight. He's in the game, too. He has really stepped up as the embodiment of this spirit of victory for his people, as the, the hero that the people of Ukraine needed. This was the responsibility of the king of Israel, to be the hero, the example, the model of faithfulness. He was to be the hero of Israel through his obedience to God's commands, through his devotion to him above all things, Saul had failed to do this. Saul disobeyed the Lord's commands. He had led the people into sin, and therefore the Lord rejected him. But we read in First and Second Samuel that David is a man after God's own heart. He is faithful. He's not perfect, but he's faithful. And throughout this whole series, we're going to be looking at this faithfulness. We're going to learn from David what does it mean to be a faithful child of God. Even in his darkest hour, when he commits adultery and then murder, David is confronted with his sin and paints for us this picture of repentance that's codified for us in Psalm 51. That is his prayer of repentance. David truly was a faithful king. That's how we should look at him. He was a hero, a leader of God's people, an example to learn from, a model Israelite for us to emulate. And we do this. And we, we look at people, we find people, we learn about people, and so we want to be like them. You know, it, it's common in, in the church to read biographies or autobiographies of missionaries who have taken the message of the gospel and in their courage and bravery and trust in the Lord have gone to foreign lands and long-lost tribes and villages to take the message of Jesus to those people too. We look to them as heroes of the faith and we're, they're lauded for their bravery, their unwavering faith. We look to people like Jim Elliott, we read his biographies and learn from him about faithfulness. We try to emulate that ourselves. 
It's, it's hardwired in our system to look for role models or for mentors to demonstrate a particular characteristic that we want to adopt ourselves. Whether it's you're reading about them in books, you follow their life blogs, maybe you listen to their podcasts or watch their YouTube channels. We all do this. We look for people who become a kind of hero that we can get behind, someone whose life we want to live up to. I believe that's why we have the life of David given to us in the Bible. He is a hero that we can get behind. He is faithful. We are to look to him as an example. I mean, David would become king, and one of his lasting legacies is that he wrote over 75 psalms that we have in our psalm book. He wrote and, and, and sung these words that express his love and faithfulness. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is David telling us what does it mean to trust in the Lord. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory high above the heavens. He's teaching us to see God's beauty in all of creation. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? I have sorrow in my heart all the day long. He teaches us how to be depressed. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my horn, my salvation, my stronghold. David is teaching us how to take on times of anxiety and uncertainty. David is a faithful man of God, and we should learn from him what does it mean to be faithful. I could go on and on and on. He teaches us about yearning for God's presence. He teaches us about how to repent of our sin. He teaches us how to cry for justice in the world. He teaches us how to rejoice and celebrate in the Lord's goodness and kindness. David teaches us what life of faithfulness looks like. He is not perfect, but he is faithful. And that's how we should see him, a hero the embodiment of faithfulness, someone that we can get behind and learn from. That is how we should see David. God looks at David and sees his heart. We look at David and see him as a hero. But there's someone else that we should see in David. The end of the story Samuel anoints David, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. Now that word, anoint, and when it's done in the presence of a future king, that the Hebrew word is Messiah, the anointed one. And when we turn to the New Testament, that is the title that everyone in the New Testament gives to Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. David is the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel. 
He is the hero that the people needed. But what made him so great is that David knew that he was not the hero of the story, that there was an anointed one beyond him, God himself, that he was the hero. Later in in David's life, the Lord will come to him, and we'll read about this after we pass Easter. The Lord comes to David and promises to David, I am going to establish your throne forever. There will always be a son of David on the throne, an anointed one on my throne forever. And this is why Jesus is called the Messiah. This is why Jesus is the anointed one, the one that we were waiting for. Jesus is that Messiah, the one who steps into the throne of David. When we see David, we should see beyond David and see Jesus. And in a sense, David is like Jesus. This is the way even the New Testament writers talk about Jesus. David points us to Jesus. This is one of the ways that the Old Testament is linked with the New Testament. These things in the Old Testament point our attention to Jesus. The other day I was in the car with my son Theo, and he's got this encyclopedia uh, like book that he with pictures, uh, and he likes to look at it and ask questions about things. And uh, on the way to school the other day, he asked, Dad, what will happen when the earth breaks apart? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, when, when the earth splits open, what will happen? And I learned that there's a page where, like, the earth is dissected, and he, you can tell, like, there's the crust and the mantle and the inner core. And he was like, well, what's going to happen? When's that going to happen? We were talking about the earth, and he was asking, what's in the middle of the earth? And I said, well, Theo, it's like an apple. With an apple, you have an outside peel, an inside flesh, and at the middle, there's a core. The earth is like an apple. There's the outside crust, the inner mantle, and then the center core. This is how we learn things. This is like that. The earth is like an apple. This is how we learn. This is how the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is like this. Jesus is like that. The New Testament says Jesus is like David. He's a king. He's the anointed one. He reigns on the throne forever. He brings justice and righteousness. Jesus is like David. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is filled with people and and, and events and artifacts that point us to Jesus. It's like this beautiful tapestry of things woven together that, that sort of work together pointing us to Jesus. And in fact, when Jesus looks at this tapestry, he doesn't just see those events, he sees himself. This is the way that Jesus understood who he was in this story, that all of these things pointed to him. Jesus understood that Jesus was the hero of the story of David. And so when we study the life of David, we have to keep this in mind. David is not the hero. Jesus is. We see 
when we see the life of David, we see the heart of Jesus. Jesus is like David. And then we can pull one example in conclusion from this very story. Samuel is looking for the king, and these, these seven sons have passed by, and it's not one of them. And he, and he says, Jesse, are there no more sons? Jesse says, yeah, there's one more, the youngest, the smallest. And he's out keeping the sheep. He's the shepherd boy out in the field. That is the king. All throughout the history of God's people, the people of God are called sheep. And the leaders raised up to care for them are called shepherds. The kings of Israel were called to be shepherds of the sheep. This is the heart of David. He is a shepherd at heart, caring for the sheep. This is the one that the Lord wants to rule and reign. And next week when we look at David and Goliath, David will share a story and says, hey, when I was out keeping the sheep, when one of my sheep would be taken by the mouth of a lion or bear, I would go after it and save the sheep. This should remind us of the parable that Jesus taught us, that the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 in search of the one lost sheep. Jesus is like David, the shepherd of the people. In fact, Jesus goes on to say he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his own life in protection of the sheep. Friends, as we study the life of David, we should see beyond David and see Jesus, who, who is the greater David, who is the, the good shepherd. Jesus laid down his own life in protection of his sheep, you and me. He died on the cross to save you, to bring you home. When we look at the life of David, we should see our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how beautifully woven together it is that all of these parts put together point us to our faithful Savior, Jesus, who truly is the hero of our lives. We thank you, um, Lord, through the life of David, you point us to the heart of our Savior, who, like David before him, was willing to lay down his own life, indeed did lay down his own life in protection of the sheep. We thank you for that grace that through your Son we are saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.